Welcome to the Season 5 finale and 100th episode of Monsters Among Us. I am your guide, Derek Hayes. That's right, you heard it correctly. 100 episodes. It's incredible to think that 100 episodes ago, I nervously stepped into the blanket fort I made in the corner of my garage to record the very first episode. I vividly remember having to record in 5-minute increments because planes taking off from LAX would ruin my sound quality perfectly on schedule. Well, here we are. 100 episodes, two years and four months, and tens of thousands of regular listeners later. So before we get started on this Hometown Legends special, I want to say a big thank you to each and every one of you. Without your participation, none of this would be possible. Without your interest, I would have folded up over a year ago. So once again, as always, thank you to each and every one of you. Now, what do you say we go ahead and unravel a few mysteries? Our first hometown legend submission of the night comes to us from Bree in the state of West Virginia. Hi, Derek. This is Bree. I called you about a year ago, uh, reporting a weird sound from Pennsylvania in my childhood. And I'm calling back this time with a hometown legend. Um, And it's not really my hometown. It's where I go to school. I'm a college student at West Virginia University, and one of, as all colleges have, we have great ghost stories, but my favorite is the ghost cow of Woodburn Hall. So how it goes is West Virginia University started out as an agricultural school, and to honor our heritage, um, some seniors one year decided it would be a great prank to take a cow from our farm and put it up in the tower of one of our most uh, significant lecture halls. So they took the cow up the stairs and left it in the tower and had a great laugh until they realized cows can't go downstairs. And so the story has it that the cow actually stayed up in the tower until the day it died. They fed it, they took care of it, and it just lived in the tower um, until it died. And so now the reports are that students can hear huff beats, and if you're lucky, you might catch a glimpse of the cow if you're in Woodburn Hall late at night. And I always say that college is scary, but nothing scarier than the ghost cow of Woodburn Hall. So I thought it was just a fun little legend that you'd like to share in your hometown legend segment. Um, Love the podcast as always. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Bree. 
My first concern was of the poor cow. I can't imagine living my life out as a cow in the tiny confines of a bell tower. Was she able to move around, run, or stretch? And of course, because it's me, my next thought was as follows. How did they get her down once she died? Cows can weigh in excess of 2,000 pounds. So did they just push her down the steps or were they forced to butcher her there on the spot and take her down piece by piece? I'm a bit of an animal lover, so my concerns got the better of me and I did a little bit of research. A quick search on Google tells me that cows and horses both have a terribly difficult time maneuvering down stairways. But a quick poke around YouTube produced several videos of cows doing just that. Walking down the stairs. So I'm assuming that at least the latter half of the legend was a bit of a fabrication. Hopefully. Either way, I certainly hope that the local diner or pub has a tower burger or something similar. Some sort of nod to that awesome little legend. So thank you again, Bree, for taking the time to share this cool story. Our next submission comes to us in the written form. The following is Jamie's story from Kentucky. Hi. My name is Jamie, and I'm from Erlander, Kentucky. I grew up in Southgate, a city between Newport and Fort Thomas. I'm fairly new, so if someone has covered this story, I'm sorry. My hometown legend is Bobby Mackey's Music Center, located in Wilder, Kentucky, maybe five minutes from where I grew up. It's basically a country-western bar, and is supposed to be super haunted. Back in the day, it used to be a slaughterhouse and was turned into a bar. It supposedly has tunnels with chutes of some sort, that they used to drop meat scraps into a nearby river. Two of the major ghost stories connected to the bar involve pregnant women. In the late 1800s, a pregnant woman named Pearl Bryan was murdered by her baby's father and one of his friends. The story goes they murdered her and removed her head. They took her head and threw it in a well that was in the basement of Bobby Mackey's. The other more popular of the stories is of Johanna. Johanna fell in love and got pregnant. Her father found out and killed her lover. Heartbroken, she drank poison and died there. There have been stories from Bobby's wife being pushed down the steps when she was pregnant. People claim to see shadows and cold spots and things turning on by themselves. They do ghost tours on Fridays and Saturdays when they are open and recommend if you are pregnant that you do not go on the tour. This place has been on ghost hunters and ghost adventurers. I've been there a couple of times and I haven't seen anything or felt anything weird unless you count some questionable dance moves by some of the patrons. Now the Pearl Bryan case is very well documented as far as her head being thrown in the well. That part is unknown, but it never was found. The other story I haven't found anything to verify either. I love the show, can't wait to hear other people's stories. Have a great day and thank you, Jamie. Well thank you Jamie. This location is actually very famous as far as haunted locations are concerned. As Jamie said, ghost hunters and ghost adventurers both have investigated there, but that is merely the tip of the iceberg. Any paranormal show worth their salt has done an investigation at this infamous location. And although Jamie does a very good job of describing the events that have and continue to conspire there, I thought this was a very good opportunity to share more and dig deeper to the bottom of this haunted hotspot. If we really get down to it, I think we all need to come to a realization that we have no idea what criteria is necessary to produce a haunting. 
From cemeteries to everyday private homes, strange paranormal happenings seem to pick and choose their places of operation at random. But be it random or not, there seems to be specific criteria that for whatever reason tickle ghosts' fancies. Murder, incarceration, torture, illness, and suicide are just a few examples of the uplifting laundry list of events that seem to encourage paranormal activity. Many haunted locations will have an association to one of these unsettling stories, but when a location's history is able to check a few of these off the list, does the chance of a paranormal encounter increase? In the case of Bobby Mackey's world, the experiences described and stories told may give that theory some credit. If we're going to start from the beginning, the land located in Wilder, Kentucky, which houses Bobby Mackey's, is said to have originally supported a slaughterhouse in the early 19th century. After the demolition of the slaughterhouse, the land became home to a roadhouse that took on various names, such as the Brisbane, until the country music singer Bobby Mackey purchased the location in 1978, thus birthing Bobby Mackey's music world. Bobby Mackey's has been a host for country music musicians and bands for decades, but it is not until recent that the popular music venue has joined the list of most haunted locations in the United States. Although stories of paranormal activity have always been associated with the music venue, it was a visit from everyone's favorite ghost hunters, Zach Bagans and the Ghost Adventure crew, that shed light on the location's many paranormal happenings and tragic history. One story associated with the location is the tragic murder of Pearl Bryan. Originally from Indiana, the pregnant Pearl Bryan traveled to Fort Thomas, Kentucky in 1896. While some believe Pearl was traveling to Kentucky to find and marry the father of her unborn child, most people say Pearl was meeting with her boyfriend, Scott Jackson, and his roommate, Alonzo Waller, to perform an abortion. As the story goes, Pearl's abortion, which included the use of dental tools and poisonous substances, was a botch. Seeing no way out of their situation, Jackson and Waller murdered Pearl by severing her head below the fifth vertebra. Brian's headless body was found by a man named John Hewing, launching an investigation of her death. Being such a gruesome murder, the case became a bit of a sensation amongst the American people. Jackson and Waller were soon arrested and convicted of Pearl's murder. The two were hanged behind the Newport Campbell County Courthouse on York Street. Although Pearl's body was located in a field four miles from Bobby Mackey's, her ghost is said to be haunting the music venue. Paranormal experiences, such as hearing Pearl's voice to seeing her apparition, have been claimed by visiting paranormal investigators. Another, more intimate tragedy took place inside the actual building now called Bobby Mackey's Music World. In the 1950s, the building was reopened as a nightclub called the Latin Quarter. Being known for their dance shows, music, and illegal gambling, the Latin Quarter was a happening place to be in 1950s Kentucky. The tragic story of the Latin Quarter surrounds the nightclub owner's daughter, Johanna. As the story goes, Johanna fell in love with one of the singers performing at the club. Johanna became pregnant, which infuriated her father. Being allegedly connected to criminal activity, Johanna's father had the singer killed, leaving her devastated. Johanna's grief led her to taking her own life being five months pregnant. Her body was found in the basement of the establishment. 
A poem, which is still preserved at Bobby Mackey's, is allegedly written by Johanna before her suicide. The poem reads, My love is deep as the sea, that flows forever, you are me, where will it end? I tell you never. My love is as bright as the sun, that shines forever, you ask me when will it end? I tell you never. The world may disappear like a castle of sand, but I will be waiting here with my heart in my hand. My love, I love you so much, now and forever. You ask me, when will it end? I tell you never. Similar to Pearl, tales of Johanna's ghost have intertwined themselves within the history of this infamous location. Although stories surrounding Bobby Mackey's world seem to keep stacking up, I cannot help but dig a little deeper into the folklore. There are many people who have disputed that the stories surrounding the honky-tonk are nothing but misconstrued stories of the past. Investigation has failed to find public records of any such events, and research into property records, newspapers, and court files have failed to substantiate some of the claims made regarding the history of the location. That clip comes courtesy of ParanormalWarehouse.com and can be found in full in the show notes for this evening's show by visiting MonstersAmongUsPodcast.com. So it would seem that there are some discrepancies about the true history of the location, but for those that have experienced activity in the building, there is no denying that there are in fact ghosts at Bobby Mackey's Music World. Thanks again, Jamie, for sharing this entry. Our next call comes from my neck of the woods. The following is Bryce's call from California. Hey Derek, this is Bryce, and I wanted to call and give you a story for your hometown legend segment. This is called The Browning Road Lady. I live in Bakersfield, California, and roughly 30 minutes north from here there's a little town called Delano. And east of town there is a road called Browning, and it generally just leads you through a bunch of fields, nothing major. But urban legend goes, a woman one morning was going across the street when she was fatally struck by a car and died on impact. So now, people driving down the road at night, generally, they see a woman, like, weeping on the side of the road. And they go, you know, that's not supposed to be there. So they'll pull over and they'll let her into the car, you know. And a couple of miles down the road, she vanishes. Or even worse, some people have also reported that they see a shadowy apparition jump in front of the cars mimicking like a person and they'll swerve and they've even got into car crashes mind you the only lights on the actual road are car your own car lights or car lights from another car like there's it's a very dim road with little to no lights and the last thing people see is quite possibly the worst that you could see if you're driving down the road by yourself she will actually appear in your rearview mirror. And if she doesn't have your attention, she'll actually nudge you right over your car, you know, headrest. And I I couldn't imagine the horror that that could lead to. I'd definitely go flying. So that was a short and sweet and to the point. So I'd like to thank you again for letting my story be told and keep it up. Bye-bye. Thanks, Bryce. I've been through that area a few times on my way to my favorite fly fishing destination, and I can confirm Bryce's claims. It certainly can be creepy. The area is vast, empty, 
and all kinds of unsettling. From time to time, you'll pass a long-forgotten home or tiny town long past its glory years. But it almost seems like you never make your way out. I have not heard of the White Lady, but with so many stories like it across the country, I'm not at all surprised that a legend like that exists there. Another legend from that area that's always had my attention comes from nearby Lake Isabella near Kernville, yet another fishing destination for me. According to the legend, a Chinese cook was killed there many, many years ago, before the Kern River was dammed to create the lake. Now, visitors to the area have witnessed the apparition of the murdered man floating above the water of the lake, seemingly searching out his killer. Thanks again, Bryce, for the story. And for anyone that might be going through that area, I highly recommend McNally's Steakhouse. It's in the middle of nowhere, but well worth the time it takes to get there. Alright, next up we head east to Georgia. This is a written entry by Derek. Hi, I had messaged you about sharing my hometown story of the old Dixie Inn. The following is my story, along with the picture mentioned in it. In my old hometown, Thompson, Georgia, there is this old house called the Old Dixie Inn, which was an old mill that had been turned into an inn-type hotel. It had been long rumored to be haunted. The stories vary, but the most popular are of a guest of the inn hanging themselves and haunting the location, and that the former homeowners haunting the house as well. Witnesses have claimed to hear strange-sounding footsteps and loud, unusual bangs. It has been investigated by several paranormal organizations, including the Georgia Paranormal Society. They claim they have confirmed the place is haunted. This is my personal experience with what we've called the Bonneville Inn. Back in 1994, when I was a junior in high school, I moved to Bonneville, Georgia, right down the road from this house. I made friends pretty quickly, and they had told me the history of the house. Of course, I wanted to check out the house and see it for myself. It was late August, and my friends and I decided we would spend the night in the old house. I rode my four-wheeler down to the house and met my friends there around 7 p.m. When I walked into the house, I noticed it was considerably colder inside than it was outside. But it was an old house. I also had the feeling I was being watched, but that could have just been because we weren't supposed to be there. We decided to camp out in the front room. That way, if anyone came, we could escape out the back. As we were dozing off sometime after midnight, we heard this loud banging noise, like something was hitting the wall. My friends started to freak out a little, but I don't scare that easily. So I wanted to go check out where the sound was coming from. As I was approaching the stairs that went down to what I assumed was a basement or cellar-type room, the banging stopped. I slowly went down the stairs and noticed the room was extremely cold and the floors were made of dirt, which could explain why the room was so cold. That's when I saw a shadow in the corner of the room, which I didn't think much of. It could have just been cast from a flashlight I was carrying. Then suddenly, my flashlight went out. Of course, it could have been the batteries, but you never know. That's when I felt something shove my chest. Then I heard this loud noise which sounded like a voice saying something I couldn't make out. I was beyond scared at this point and ran back up the stairs, never stopping, as I yelled to my friends to get out. I ran all the way home in my boxers, leaving all my belongings behind. 
The next day, I was still too shaken to go by myself to get my stuff, so I made my parents drive me and wait on me to get my things. After that, I always got an uneasy feeling every time we passed that old house. Years later, I returned to the house with my family. It was daytime, and we did enter the house, and I was telling my family about the experience that night. I did not go down the stairs, though. I did stop and take a picture of the outside of the old house before we left. I didn't look at the picture again until I got home, but in the doorway there was a shadow and what I have been told is an orb. Sadly, the old house burned down in what law enforcement called a suspicious fire in 2013, but I'll never forget my experience in that house that night. Thank you for letting me share this story. Well, thank you, Derek. It seems there are so many buildings like this scattered across the country. In fact, back home we had the Buxton Inn, but more on that in just a minute. As far as your experiences are concerned, I believe I may have an answer to at least a few of them. The sounds you heard, with the house being abandoned, I'm almost certain that animals have taken up residence inside. Raccoons, squirrels, owls, rats, mice, and a host of other creatures could have easily made nests inside the walls and in the attic and being that you heard the sounds at night would also fall in line with one of these nocturnal creatures poking around. And as for the photo, which you can see by visiting the show notes for this episode, I believe what we are seeing is a glare from the sun that's creating a lens flare. If you look above the porch, you can see the flare continuing up to the sun which is shining from behind the house. Despite all that, the structure certainly seems to have history, and definitely looks the part of a haunted inn. It's a shame that the building is no longer with us. And as for the Buxton Inn that I mentioned a few moments ago, that story is too good not to share. The Granville, Ohio structure was built in 1812 and served as a post office for its first few years. The now famous inn is said to be haunted by its builder, Warren Granger, and also by a later owner and the building's namesake, Major Horton Buxton. In addition to the human ghost reported, many patrons claim to have seen a spectral cat roaming throughout the the building. The best part of this inn is that it's still open, so you can stay there and experience activity for yourself. I myself have never stayed there, but perhaps someday soon I will. Thanks again, Derek, for that great story. Our next hometown legend takes us north to the state of Illinois. The following is Ethan's story. Hi, Derek. My name is Ethan, and I'm from Rockford, Illinois. Uh, I've been playing catch-up on the podcast. I really love it. Uh, It's a great way to uh, hear stories from real people about things that happen in our world, and I really enjoy that, and I thank you for putting it on and letting people like me have a voice and call in. Uh, I missed the mark on the hometown legends. Like I said, I've been playing catch-up. So uh, I hope maybe you can use this in season five. Um, this is our hometown legend here in Rockford. I, I uh, work at a cemetery. I actually work at two. There's a newer one and an older one. And this is a story about uh, one of the cemeteries that I don't work at, but uh, one that's in town. We have a few, but it's, I think it's one of the oldest ones. I'm not 100% sure when it was made, um, but it is out of town. Uh, I mean, we're a big city here in Rockford. I think we're number three in Illinois behind Chicago and Springfield. And it's kind of far out of town. 
and it's called Blood Point Cemetery. Now, uh, in high school, me and my friends had decided to go to this place, and supposedly there's a bridge cross under, and you can see before you get to the cemetery, and there is a young girl that had hung herself there, and you can see her apparition, and then you can see other apparitions and stuff and shadows that sit on top of tombstones when you get to the cemetery. So being the uh, quote-unquote ghostbusters that we were, me and my cousin and the rest of my friends decided we were going to go there. So the night before, I did some research on the cemetery and found out about the apparitions and things. And then when you leave the cemetery, Ian, I think you're supposed to go between, uh, again, I don't remember exactly, but I believe it's midnight and two. Uh, they, after you go there and you stay there for that length of time, when you leave, you're followed by a big black truck. I don't know the make or the model, but it's a big truck, that black truck that follows you. And uh, according to the guys in the story, it followed them for a good 20 miles. And so they chased them, and you kind of have to trick the truck and lose it, and then it, then it disappears, and it disappeared from them. So we were like, all right, so this is what we're going to do. We both had sports cars. My cousin and his friends got in one car, and I, my girlfriend at the time, and another group of my friends got in the car, my car, and we put it in the GPS, and we took off down. And so we were going down, and we got about halfway there, and this is where the creepy part comes in. Um, I want to preface this by saying I'm religious, I don't necessarily believe in ghosts, but I do believe in dark entities taking familiar spirits. And so we we uh, were going about halfway there, and my GPS started freaking out, which older GPS on older tom-toms and things like that, it's not that uh, weird. You know, it wasn't, you know, this is back in high school, six or eight, six to eight years ago. And uh, I it starts messing up. But it starts doing it like I've never seen it before. It starts flying all around the screen and everything like that. And so I was like, okay, well, in about five minutes, so it'll reset itself. So I waited about 10 minutes because it said just go straight. And so we're going down the road straight. And I called my cousin. And I was like, is your GPS messing up? And he's like, yeah, it's going crazy. I've never seen it do this before. And so I was like, okay, that's really weird. Well, let's just, I told him, I said, let's just keep going. It said go straight. And it would be up here. We'll find the bridge and we'll find the cemetery. We never found it. Um, to this day, I have not been to the cemetery. Uh, it, we traveled into another county, and we had never found the cemetery. Never found it. Uh, my cousin went back out twice and tried to find it, and he couldn't find it. Again, the GPS did the same thing. Even He did it even as recently as uh, two or three years ago with the new cell phone GPSs and couldn't find it. Um, the bridge, I know, has been torn down. But uh, it, it's just, it's creepy. And with me working in the cemetery, I have a few more stories, which I'd like to share with another call. But uh, once again, thank you. I hope you can use this. Uh, I hope it works for your format. All right. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Ethan. When I was in high school and college, we'd often investigate cemeteries. Little did we know it was considered trespassing, so please follow local and federal laws before exploring these places but we never really experienced anything outside of barking dogs and deer that would seem to leap out of the graves themselves. But there was certainly something magical about these places at night. On the surface, they were quiet and peaceful, but it felt like the earth could open up at any moment and scenes from the third act of the film Poltergeist would come to mind.
Now as for that GPS unit malfunctioning, it's not uncommon for these things to crash from time to time. But the behavior described and the fact that two separate units reacted the same way is enough to warrant further investigation. I suppose it's possible that both cars simply drove through a dead zone, no pun intended. But again, that usually causes the unit to shut down, not interfere with the display on the screen. So thank you again, Ethan, for taking the time to share that experience. Next up, we venture west to the state of Utah for the following eerie tale, courtesy of Corey. Hi, Derek. My name's Corey. I'm calling from Utah. This is from the Hometown Legends section. Um, I grew up in a little teeny tiny town in western Utah called Delta. And about 50 miles west of, of town, there is uh, a pair of mountains called the Drums. There's Big Drum and Little Drum. And the story, this is a story about the drums that I heard. Uh, first of all, let me back up a little bit. If you look them up online, you'll... you'll go to like the Wikipedia page and they'll say that they're called the Drum Mountains because if you look at them from the right angle, they kind of look like a drum. That is not the story the way uh, that I've heard it told. Anyway, so back at the turn of the, the 20th century, uh, there's a, a shepherd who is out in that area looking after his flocks and he goes up into the mountains and he's settling down for the night. Uh, he's got his fire started and He's just he's, he's settling in, and all of a sudden he starts to hear this rhythmic kind of banging sound. And he first thought is, oh, there's a horse. Somebody saw my fire. They're coming to 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 visit. Except for then he noticed that his horse and his dog were also really nervous and really really agitated, and they wouldn't be if it was another horse that was coming. And this this pounding just keeps we kept continuing on and off, um, and the only thing he can think of is maybe it's it's the natives nearby, and so he's he's too scared to sleep, so he sits up all night with his gun and just listening to this pounding. And uh, in the morning, when the sun comes up, he looks around, and there aren't any uh, native camps anywhere nearby. Uh, this is a really dry area. There's not a lot of water. This isn't, you know, if, if you're going to gather at a certain place, it's going to be where there's water, and so there wasn't any anybody by where he was camping, then there wasn't going to be anybody nearby. They'd be at the next uh, watering hole. Um, and he just had no idea of, of how how to explain it. Um, and so that's why we call the Drum Mountains the Drum Mountains. Um, this pounding has been heard several times at Little Drum. As far as I know, it's only been heard once at Big Drum. Um, now... Don't go looking for answers because you just might find them. Uh, I was listening to uh, Mikey Haynes' show when he was talking about he's got a website uh, dedicated to mystery booms. And, and so I went over there with the, the story of the drums in mind and I was poking through and I saw that he has a, a section that's talking about shallow earthquakes. And so I was, I was intrigued and so I went over to uh, the USGS website to look at fault maps and sure enough there are a lot of shallow faults throughout both the big drum and the little drum and so that's probably what causes the noise 
Uh, I still think it's a good story. I hope you can use it. Anyway, thank you so much for your show, Derek. I hope that uh, you have another wonderful season. Bye-bye. Thank you, Corey. I have a huge interest in and immense respect for the Native American culture. I have since I was a young kid and found my very first arrowhead in the creek behind my dad's house. Ironically, a mere 100 feet from the location of my big black cat sighting. So I have a soft spot for any story involving Native Americans. And Corey's story is no exception. I can only imagine being out in the middle of nowhere and suddenly the sounds of distant drums flood your ears. The very thought gives me shivers. There are countless Native American legends across the country. I know I spoke of the scary yet fabricated story of the naming of the Maumee River on the last Hometown Legends episode. And perhaps one day I'll put together a full episode of all these legends. That's certainly something I would enjoy. Thank you again, Corey, for sharing. Drums in the distance, it's almost something out of a old-timey western movie. And that's going to do it for this... Ah, I'm just messing around. We have several more calls to explore, but before we do... I have a message from the best Facebook admin in the business, Miss Addie Lloyd. Hey guys, it's Addie here with the Monsters Among Us Facebook page. And I wanted to take a moment and share my gratitude and thanks for those people that found it in their hearts and their wallets to donate when Derek called out for donations for Warren and myself. First of all, I was highly surprised and pleasantly surprised at that to have Derek do a call out for that. It was not what I was expecting and it definitely made my day. Second, I truly appreciate that people find value in what I do. Um, This is truly a hobby and as Derek has stated, it is unpaid, but what I'm gaining on the other side is definitely worth it. So these folks that found it in their hearts and wallets to reach out for myself and Warren, I wanted to thank you. Uh, Thank you, Samuel L., Angela W., Reed D., Chris G., Charmin M., Daniel W., Adam B., and a very large donation from Teresa Z. And I so appreciate that. I hope that if anything you gain something positive in your life from podcasts, whether it's Monsters Among Us or any of the other ones you may choose to listen to. I know, for example, this is a little bit embarrassing, but I am going to share a bit of uh, into my life. But podcasts have helped me get rid of uh, my candy crush addiction. So that is definitely a positive thing. And I feel like if you're able to listen to a podcast while you are doing a menial task around your job or your house or whatever, it just makes it that much more enjoyable and it helps it get done quicker. And so that's one of the one or two of the reasons why I truly enjoy podcasts. But again, I'm very humbled by the people who reached out and donated and I wanted to personally thank you. Thank you so much. I too would like to thank those individuals. Their generosity is inspiring. 
Now, if you'd like to donate to the show, you can do so by visiting the donate button on the show's webpage. Or, if you'd like to get something in return for your donation, consider signing up for Patreon. A simple search at patreon.com for Monsters Among Us podcasts will take you right to my page. $4 a month gives you access to two episodes and a video each month. Except that right now I'm terribly behind. But with a little luck and some much needed free time, I'll catch up soon. So consider either option today, and of course, no matter what you do, I certainly appreciate all the support. Now our next submission is another written one. This is Wanda's entry from Washington State. Hi, I have a quick story for the Hometown Legends segment. I've recently graduated high school and I live in the Puget Sound area of Washington. My freshman year of high school, we were having debate practice on an early December Saturday morning. Because we were there on a weekend, none of the lights were on and the heater wasn't on, making practice hell. So our coach took us down to the basement. As we walked down to the basement, our coach started to tell us about how our school had been built over an old prison. And the basement, which we were in, had been where they executed prisoners. Now, as a freshman who was still scared of the dark, this terrified me. And I was even more terrified when I started hearing banging sounds from down the long hallway. Looking back at it now, it was probably a fake story and the sounds were simply coincidental. But it's a nice story to look back on, especially now that my debate coach has passed. Another quick story I have is also from my debate years. At this one high school where we would have debate tournaments, every girl swore that this one bathroom was haunted. It was stuck in a corner, way longer than it was deep, with a little hallway that you had to walk through to get to the bathroom, and long dark windows that looked up at the sidewalk. We would never go in there alone, because if you went in there alone, doors would shut by themselves, toilets would flush, and faucets would turn on by themselves, and they were not automatic. I would always get a scared, oppressive feeling in there, and I would always try to get out of there as soon as possible. Thanks for your time, Wanda and Impugent Sound. Thank you for that story. I almost saved that one for the upcoming Back to School special where I explore calls about hauntings at schools and universities. And speaking of which, if you have a story about your school or college, please be sure to call that in. That number again is one 888 608 night. That's 1-888-608-6444. Or hit up the Report Your Sightings tab at the website, which again is monstersamonguspodcast.com. Or you can simply email me at monstersamonguspodcast at gmail.com. It goes without saying that I'm always looking for stories, so if you have one, pick up the phone. And I should also add that I'm actively searching for lake and sea monster sightings. So if you or someone you know has had an experience you know what to do. Thank you again for that interesting story. Moving right along, our next call comes to us via John in Florida. Hey Derek, it's John again. Sorry to call so much in one day, but I'm remembering these things since I've told you. Um, and this is probably your local legend saying that you'd probably like to do. It's pretty relatively quick by my terms. So, um, one of the, uh, I told you about the local community that I now police after transferring. So the local police department has a, uh, a little legend they call the boogers. And I looked this up and it's basically like a small Sasquatch. I've never seen one or anything, but the story is, is that these little guys go into 
you know, trash cans and all that. They're in the middle of the night, and they're they're not har- harmful. They're, that's why they call them little boogers, because they just mess around. And uh, the police department knows about these guys, the sheriff's department. They get calls for them about monthly, and it's all, like, little rural, kind of on the outskirts of the town things. of like a person's going through a trash can, you know. And um, they get calls for them all the time. But what's weird is that the department has names for, like, different looking ones. Like, um, I haven't been told what they look like, but they have different little names for them. And some of the officers even know if they get a call in a certain area, they're like, oh, that will be, you know, Frenchie, the weird booger um, out there on the um, east side, you know, the west side. And then also, apparently, whenever, you know, they evacuate the city for hurricanes and we're us, fire, and EMT, and essential personnel only ones left in the city, they just go crazy. And um, they've been known to steal, you know, snacks from convenience stores that left their doors open when someone's on third shift going to the restroom and stuff like that. I don't know if any of them's caught on a camera, but basically, um, from what they tell me, if you get a booger call, dispatch is like, hey, it's a booger call. We're just going to go out, investigate. They don't write any reports, obviously. And the locals, if, if you're long, there long enough, it's a booger call. You call the cops, they investigate, and nothing happens. You know, yada, yada, yada. But apparently it's a big thing. And my buddy who works uh, night shift, he runs into those calls probably, like I said, once a month. Um, I personally never seen him. And I hope I don't see him because I'm not really a big fan of anything that's uh, too scary. But um, if you're ever on the Gulf Coast and near Tampa, um, and you go in a city and you hear about boogers, that's what they are. And uh, I'm pretty sure these calls would be coming in. If I have something interesting, I'll definitely let you know. Um, a lot of weird stuff going on here in Florida and a lot of weird stuff that I know from Oklahoma. Um, all third-hand stories and, you know, excuse me, second-hand stories. But um, if you're really interested, let, let me know and I'll call in and let you know. All right, have a good one. Bye. Thank you, John. I always find it so funny the different names given to the creatures we call Bigfoot. In the Pacific Northwest in Canada, they call him Sasquatch. In Florida, he's the skunk ape. In Ohio, the grass man. And even in my area, in Joshua Tree National Park, they call him the Yucca Man. But the one name that still makes me chuckle is the moniker assigned to the creature by the folks in the southern states. They call them wood boogers. Or, sometimes, simply boogers. As John said, these boogers are sometimes reported to be smaller and more aggressive than other quote-unquote species of the creature, a claim we obviously cannot back up at this time. I do find it interesting that the police department there recognizes these calls and treats them seriously. It makes me wonder how I can get some sort of evidence kit into the hands of some of these officers. Who knows what they may come up with. Thanks again for the call, John, and Stay safe out there. I have a few more of these awesome stories to share, but before I do, I wanted to get a few of these announcements out of the way. 
Don't forget, I'll be at Crypticon in Frankfort, Kentucky, September 8th and 9th. Now, I'm not at liberty to say just yet, but expect a huge announcement involving that event on the first episode of Season 6. I should mention that you can get a free ticket to Crypticon by buying one of the leftover May crates. Simply visit cryptocrate.etsy.com. That's E-T-S-Y. And look for the May 2018 crate. Great news! Merchandise is finally here and up in the shop. I've restocked the t-shirts, and although the design is the same, we used a new shirt stock. These babies are darker and softer than anything we've had before. So if you're only going to buy one podcast shirt this year, make it this one. And don't forget that these shirts are designed and animated by the amazingly talented Julian Meyer of Cryptid Zoo. So once you get your shirt, download the app and watch your design come to life. Directions will be included in your shipment. Okay, so as you know, I take a little time off between seasons. And let me tell you, this couldn't have come at a better time. I'm by no means burned out on the show. I absolutely love doing it. I thoroughly enjoy the stories and discussing them with all of you. But I'd be lying if I said I didn't need a break. So I'm going to be dark for the next three weeks. Now wait, before you moan and groan, I do have some good news. You can catch me, along with Justin Zenger of Zeng This Podcast, on Secret Transmission Podcast. Zenger and I did a takeover episode where we discussed one of my favorite cryptids, Cadborosaurus. So search for Secret Transmission Podcast, and if it hasn't already been released, it will be soon. But wait, that's not all. I'm currently formulating a plan with Paradelphia Radio's Rick Pruitt to guest host on his program, where we will be discussing the Mirrored Men. So go follow Paradelphia Radio on social media today so you can see when that episode drops. I truly appreciate everyone's patience during this little break. As a podcast listener myself, I know how frustrating it is when a show you like goes dark. But as a podcaster, I know the process is exhausting, and sometimes you just need a break. Oh, and if you're looking for something to fill that void, might I suggest a favorite of mine. These guys burst onto the scene about two years ago and haven't looked back since. Of course, I'm talking about the Not Alone podcast. Each week, Sam and Jason dissect a different paranormal topic, each offering their own approach to that particular subject. Just search Not Alone podcast wherever you find your shows, and if you like what you hear, please tell them that I sent you. Okay, let's get back to the show. Our next written submission isn't so much paranormal as it is historically fascinating. The following is Audrey's submission from Oklahoma. Hi Derek, I'm sending in a hometown legend that's a little bit different. It's not so much paranormal, but more in the realm of conspiracy. The story goes that after the Lincoln assassination, John Wilkes Booth escaped, and the police claimed a different man was him to ease public concerns about Booth being at large in the States. There was a great deal of confusion in identifying the body after the fire in the barn, where Booth was said to have died, leading into this story. Now, Booth supposedly wound up in Texas, I believe in the Fort Worth area. Then eventually, he ended up taking his own life in my hometown of Enid, Oklahoma, in a hotel after living there for quite a while. The alleged Mr. Booth was going by the name of David E. George at the time, and he confessed on his deathbed that it was he who killed Lincoln saying, I killed the best man who ever lived. He also confessed to the murder in Texas under a different name when he was gravely ill and near death. 
George had a strikingly similar appearance to Booth, could quote Shakespeare on command. Of course, Booth was a Shakespearean actor, and had a leg break in the same leg and spot as Booth. I have attached some articles that could maybe give more information or insight on the story, and I have a legend book somewhere in my house that has an incredibly detailed account of the story, but I currently cannot find it or remember the name. I hope you enjoy the story, and thank you for the podcast. I love listening each and every week. Thank you for all you do, Audrey. Well, thank you, Audrey. This story I'm a little bit familiar with. I actually have a John Wilkes Booth item I sell through my art studio. So I've done my fair share of research on the events surrounding this terrible event in American history. But for more on Audrey's hometown legend, here's a segment from News 9 out of Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. It was news that gripped the entire country. A president shot and killed in a massive manhunt to find the killer. History books tell us that John Wilkes Booth was captured and killed at a Virginia farmhouse. But some argue the man buried in Baltimore is not Booth and that he actually died right here in Oklahoma. That's right. News9.com's Darren Brown traveled to Enid where some say the Booth legend is not a legend at all. Oklahoma connected to Lincoln's assassination. Well, it's a story over 100 years in the making. The family of John Wilkes Booth, Lincoln's assassin, believed that Booth didn't die at Garrett's farm as is widely believed, but escaped and worked his way south to Mexico back up through Texas and to El Reno, Oklahoma, under the alias of David E. George. George committed suicide in Enid, Oklahoma in 1903 by drinking wine laced with poison. Just so happened that the former Methodist pastor in El Reno and his wife were now pastoring in Enid. And in 1900, uh, a couple of years before his death, uh, David George had almost died in El Reno. And the Methodist minister's wife was tending to him as a nurse. And it was then that he confessed to being John Wilkes Booth. So when she read in the paper that David George had died uh, here in Enid, she says, honey, is this the David George we knew who confessed to being John Wilkes Booth? Turns out it was. And from there, the story gets even more confusing. There's a supposed letter that George wrote before he died to an attorney friend of his in Memphis. The letter disappeared. There's also the mummy. George's mummified body was actually displayed at a funeral parlor in Eden for years before traveling the country as a sideshow attraction. One fact that's not disputed is that there was a David E. George that died in Eden in January of 1903. And even back then, there were those who wanted to believe. Will of David E. George, January 1903, allegedly John Wilkes Booth. <laughs> so, what did you think when you came across that? Well, I was really excited, and of course, immediately I wanted to open it and see what it said. Unfortunately, there was nothing in George's papers to shed any light on his mysterious past. But could this be the signature of Lincoln's assassin? Did John Wilkes Booth, the man who assassinated President Lincoln, find his way to Enid, Oklahoma, and kill himself at the Grand Avenue Hotel. Guess what this building is? I say we go take a look. We adoringly call that the death room, yes. Uh, that is a actual a reproduction of what one of the rooms would have looked like that David E. George died in. This is our building right here on the corner. The Grand Avenue Hotel was sold in 1909 and turned into a hardware store. It was remodeled and many rooms were destroyed. Russ Frazee's family bought the building in 1922. 
room number four was approximately right over there, uh, the actual death room. Is there a possibility that you own the building where John Wilkes Booth died? I'd sure believe it, by golly. Not everyone in Enid is so easy to convince, of course, especially former history teachers. The preponderance of the evidence, <laughs> using my attorney friend's words again, uh, just leaves no doubt in my mind that John Booth died on the front porch of the Garrett farmhouse. Whether you believe it or not, whether you believe David George was actually Booth or just some guy with an overactive imagination, you have to admit it's a compelling story. I'm, I'm not one of these kind of people who, who, you know, my mind's made up, don't confuse me with facts. Until somebody proves different, I do believe this is the building that John Wilkes Booth, alias David E. George, died in. I'm not convinced uh, that David George is John Wilkes Booth, uh, but I've read the source materials, uh, I've studied it, uh, I've investigated it, and there are some good arguments. In Enid, Darren Brown, News9.com. Now, I know they've been trying to do a DNA test, but unfortunately, the cemetery where Booth's relatives are laid to rest will not allow a body to be exhumed, nor will the government release the bones they claim are John Wilkes Booth's for DNA testing. So until that day, we're left scratching our heads and simply wondering. Thank you again, Audrey. Well, next up, we head back to Utah, this time for Amber's story. Hi, Derek. This is Amber. Um, I'm calling for the hometown legends portion. Hopefully, I've got this in on time. I grew up in Utah, um, central Utah, uh, near a town called Helper. And one of the legends um, in that area was for Spring Canyon, which is just outside of Helper. And it was a um, mining area. Um, back in the day, so they started mining in that area in 1895, usually coal. So there are a number of ghost towns up that canyon um, that are associated with the former mines. And the legend has to do with a white lady. And there's a number of different stories as to how she came to be. Um, no one really knows what the actual story is. Um, and I've never actually tried to pursue this legend, but I know that a lot of high school students like to go up the canyon and try and see if they see the white lady. Um, in fact, in the 60s, someone actually went up there and he was a bit mentally disturbed because he actually thought that the white lady was real. And in his attempt to kill the white lady, he actually blew up one of the former buildings from one of the mines. Um, so he was a little bit crazy trying to go in there and kill a ghost. Um, but to this day, uh, people still go up there um, hoping that they'll see the white lady. And so she's supposed to be a ghost of the wife of a miner. Um, there's all kinds of stories as to why and how she's haunting. So some stories say that her husband was killed in a mine or that her husband died um, from like a toothache and then the mine wouldn't give her any money since he hadn't died in the mine. And so she was forced to drown her child in the nearby wash because she couldn't support herself and the child. And so she's wandering in the canyon um, haunting because of the death of her husband and the death of her child. Um, but like I said, that's just one of the stories. I've never actually gone up there looking for it, but I know that some of my friends in high school did and claimed that they'd seen her in their headlights. Um, usually she's at the mouth of the mines or near the wash. Um, but yeah, it's this kind of weird legend. 
Um, I had heard at one point in high school that she had actually worked in one of the brothels that were up the canyon because that was a big industry um, because of the mines, but um, nothing I've read online about it supports that. It just seems to have been a rumor that was going around when I was in high school. So anyway, I hope you could use that for the hometown legends, just something from the middle of nowhere, Utah. Um, I love the podcast. I enjoy listening to it, and I hope the season finale goes well. Thank you. Thank you, Amber. Ghost towns are simply amazing. Not only are they a preserved piece of American history, but they can also be downright creepy. I've had the pleasure of visiting a few, and believe it or not, I technically grew up in a ghost town. The small collection of people less than a mile from my childhood home is officially recognized as a ghost town, which basically means it once had a post office but no longer has enough people to warrant one. It sounded cooler before I explained it, didn't it? There are several famous or perhaps infamous ghost towns across the country, and perhaps one of the more popular is Bodie, California. Yet another bucket list destination for me. So thank you again, Amber, for sharing your hometown's legend. If only those sun-bleached walls could talk. Now our next story is yet another Hitchhiking Lady in White story. This one from Dylan in Kentucky. Hi, this is Dylan from Kentucky. Um, This story is uh, for a hometown legend episode. Um, So I'm going to get right into it. Um, Well, I live in Berea, Kentucky. There is a road that's got a really sharp hill on it. Um, It's kind of very high elevated. um, Kind of spooky and dark. There ain't hardly, hardly any lights or anything that's on the road so kind of real dark um so the legend is is that a woman um that is back in i think the 78 or 80s um she was murdered uh, killed by three boys um to this day they still don't know who killed her and supposedly she haunts that road so if you're ever traveling down at night and it's usually around three to four o'clock in the morning, you're driving down that road, um, she'll get into the vehicle with you and she'll ride all the way down to the bottom of the hill. Uh, legend is that she's trying to find out uh, or find her killer, actually. So uh, if you turn the radio station in the car, this has actually happened. Um she somehow makes the vehicle wreck, um, either hit a tree or something like that. So basically what she does is she'll stand at the top of the hill. And when people come around the curve, she's got her finger, you know, out as a hitchhiker. So people normally stop around in Kentucky. They stop, you know, a woman by herself in distress. So they pick her up, open the door, she gets in, she says, I just need a ride to the bottom of the hill. And when she gets down to the bottom of the hill to the curve, she just vanishes out of thin air. Um, I've had several people tell me that they've experienced this. Um, so it, it's a very creepy uh, story. I've never experienced it, but I've had several people tell me of this situation. So, yeah, but I just wanted to share that. I love the show. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Dylan. 
This type of story reminds me of perhaps the most infamous of hitchhiking ghosts, Resurrection Mary. Now, I'm almost certain I've touched on this legend in a past episode, but the story is too good not to share again. So, courtesy of Travel Channel, I happily reintroduce you to Resurrection Mary. Our next petrifying pit stop is here, a suburb southwest of Chicago called Justice, Illinois. Ride with us down Archer Avenue, but be warned, we're sharing this thoroughfare with one seriously disturbed spirit. Because of the history and the death along it, it's become known as is really one of the most haunted roadways, not only in Chicago, but anywhere in the country. Her name is Resurrection Mary. And since the 1930s, she's been making this unassuming avenue one of the most eerie roads in America. Legend has it that one night in the early 1930s, Mary and her boyfriend attended a dance at the O. Henry Ballroom, now known as the Willow Brook. It was an evening of harmless fun until... They had been dancing, got into an argument, and she left and was walking up Archer Avenue when she was struck and killed by a hit-and-run driver. But her grieving parents buried her in Resurrection Cemetery. But Mary never got the chance to rest in peace. In the 1970s, Resurrection Cemetery began moving what were called term graves into different burial spots. Now, the term graves were sort of like rental spots. So they were for bodies to be stored until an actual plot could be purchased. In the 70s, they had actually moved Mary's grave from where it was to an unmarked grave in another part of Resurrection Cemetery. And the disturbance of Mary's resting place seemed to have paranormal consequences. A lot of people, they believe that when they moved her grave, she would leave the cemetery, but then she couldn't find her grave because they had actually moved it. It makes you wonder if perhaps the disturbance of these graves is really what sort of kicked off this cycle and caused the ghosts to be seen on Archer Avenue. Soon, reports were coming in of a strange spectral girl wandering Archer Avenue. Resurrection Mary. Some claim her spirit is desperately searching for someone to lead her back to Resurrection Cemetery. There was a young man whose name was Jerry Palis. He actually met a young woman one night at a dance, a pretty blonde woman. Spent the entire evening with her. They had dinner together, they had drinks together, he danced with her. Uh, he even claimed that he kissed her a couple of times. At the end of the evening, he offered her a ride home, which she accepted. Jerry then took her uh, down Archer Avenue, right across the street from Resurrection Cemetery. He offered to drive her the rest of the way home. Instead, she put her hand on his and said, where I'm going, you can't follow got out of the car, ran across the road directly toward the gates to the cemetery, and disappeared. Now, it was at that point that Jerry claimed that he realized he'd spent the entire evening with a ghost. As far as ghost stories go, that one is a classic. And thank you again, Dylan, for sharing your town's version. And now, for the final story of the season. For this one, we stay in the state of Kentucky, and this time, we visit with Brandon. Hey Derek, uh, my name is Brandon. I'm from Shepherdsville, Kentucky. Uh, this is my first time calling. Um, this is for the um, local legends segment for your season finale. 
And I just wanted to talk about something that you brought up in the past, which is the Goat Man. And my when I first heard about the Goat Man, I was a lot younger, and it was different than the actual story. Um, my dad told me about it. To keep a long story short, he told me about it, and he said that it was this man who had a goat farm, and then one day they all just they just all vanished. And now he he kind of hunts in this cornfield. And so we went out to to look at this meteor shower, but we couldn't see it. But somehow my dad managed to get me to get out of the car to look at something. <laughs> and he drove off like 30 feet, making me think he was going to leave me there. I, I was terrified at the time, but I think it's hilarious now. But that's when I first heard about the Goat Man, and I wanted to see if it was real um, or what all was going on with the story. It turns out that it's some the actual story is somewhere around Louisville, which even if you're not from Kentucky, most people know where Louisville is. That's where like the Kentucky Derby and everything takes place. But essentially, it's this place in the middle of the woods. I don't remember all of the details. I probably should have done more research. But there's this bridge that essentially, if you try to cross the bridge, then the goat man will, will lure you into the woods by mimicking uh, people's voices, kind of like a, like a skinwalker or a Wendigo type of thing. And it essentially kills you. And it's like this demon that's like part man and part goat. Kind of like that character from Narnia, except a lot creepier. Uh, but yeah, that's that's really about it. Um, I have some sightings that I can call in at a later time. Stuff that I've actually seen to tell you about. But yeah, I just wanted to give you that uh, that story. All right. Thanks for the podcast. I love it a whole lot and can't wait to call back in. Bye. Thank you, Brandon. Ah, uh, yes. The Goatman. There are several Goatman legends throughout the country, but the one Brandon is speaking of is probably one of the more famous. Not only because of the creature itself, but also because of the deaths surrounding the search. A woman's search for thrills ends in tragedy. Raquel Bain of Dayton, Ohio, was hit and killed by a train last night near South Poplick Road. Her boyfriend survived the accident. Way through news reporter Sharon Yu joins us now live in our newsroom. And Sharon, what were the couple looking for there? Well, Chris, the coroner tells us that Bain and her boyfriend were headed to Waverly Hill Sanatorium for the haunted tour. But before that, they made a stop at the trestles near South Poplick Road to check out the myth of the goat man. Today, I spoke with people in the area who told me this myth has taken the lives of many people over the years. Actually, it's, it's been around for years. Even my nephews and nieces used to go and, you know, come out here. Whether it's to see the goat man of urban legend or just for the fun of it, Denise Harris says many people have found reasons to travel up to the trestles that cross South Poplick Road. The goat man, if you climb up on the trestles, and they cross it, and they're, he's supposed to come out when they cross the trust. Little do they know, going up there is a deadly choice. If they're halfway through here and a train comes, you either have to jump, run, or basically you get hit. 
Harris says many people assume they can outrun the train. When you're young, you think that you're going to live forever. You know, it's a euphoria, it is. You know, or they think they can outrun the trains, but, you know, that's a long way to go. And, you know, running, you can't run that fast. I'm sorry, you just can't. She's right. With Norfolk Southern trains passing by at an average of 24.1 miles per hour, you would have to be faster than Usain Bolt, the fastest runner in the world, just to keep up with the train. Plus, other residents say this specific area sees heavy traffic. And I see a train pass every 30 minutes or so. It's shocking that you hear about so many deaths and people still go and take the risk. Burns says she can only hope people will give it a second thought before they make the last decision of their lives. That story comes courtesy of WAVE, News 3 out of Louisville, Kentucky. Now, I certainly do not want to end this episode on a sad note, but I do want to make people aware of the dangers of investigating some of these urban legends. Now, as for the Goatman himself, as I said, Pope Lick Road, just outside of Louisville, is not the only home of the infamous Goatman. There are Goatman legends in Kentucky, Texas, Ohio, Oregon, Wisconsin, and probably most recognized, Maryland. The Maryland Goatman is exactly what it says on the label. It's a creature that appears to be half man, half goat. It is known for terrorizing lovers, chasing down teens with an axe, and decapitating dogs, as well as squealing and making goat noises. There are many variations of how the mythical Goatman came to be, including an angry goat herder gone mad and seeking revenge on teens who killed his goats, something resembling a Bigfoot creature, the result of a genetic experiment, or even simply an old hermit who lives in the woods and wanders Fletchertown Road at night. The experiment myth is the most pervasive of them all, and involves the nearby Beltsville Agricultural Research Center. Dr. Stephen Fletcher supposedly confessed to crossing the DNA of a goat and that of his assistant William Lotsford, which naturally went terribly wrong. Though I'm not sure how an experiment like that could possibly go right. The newly created Goatman then escaped and began attacking cars with an axe and roaming the back roads of Beltsville. Of course, the Beltsville Agricultural Research Center has outright denied any of this is true. The first reported sighting of the Goatman was in 1957. Eyewitnesses reported seeing it in Forestville and Upper Marlboro in Prince George's County. It wasn't until the 1960s that the first violent encounter would take place. The story goes that a young couple went to Fletchertown Road and were being bothered by something in the woods. The young man got out of the car to investigate, but he never came back. When an investigation occurred the next day, his severed head was found hanging in a tree above where the car had been parked. His body was never found. Another unbelievably violent encounter supposedly took place in 1962. The Goatman was accused of killing 14 people, 12 of whom were children, with the other two being adult chaperones. The group was evidently hiking too close to the Goatman's home. Unidentified survivors claimed that the Goatman hacked the victims to pieces with an axe, making noises only the devil himself would make. When the police arrived, they found half-eaten limbs and a bloody trail leading to a cave. As might be expected, there is no record of this event actually occurring. The most famous incident involving the Maryland Goatman occurred in 1971. It was at this point that the article, Residents Fear Goatman Lives, Dog Found Decapitated in Old Bowie, written by Karen Hosler, appeared in Prince George's County News. In this article, Hosler describes how a family by the name of Edwards had lost their dog, Ginger. 
Ginger was found by Ray Hayden, John Hayden, and Willie Gein a few days after going missing. She was found headless near Fletchertown Road. Hoser's article connected the death of Ginger to the Maryland Goatman because of a group of teenage girls, which included 16-year-old April Edwards. They had heard strange noises and seen a large creature the night the dog had disappeared. Stories of the Goatman had been around in the 50s and 60s, but the incident with Ginger in the 70s caused heightened interest in the creature. During this time, searching for the Goatman was a local teen obsession, and Goatman parties were even held. It was also during this time that there were increased sightings of an animal-like creature that walks on its hind legs along Fletchertown Road. Mark Obsasnik, who grew up during this period, wrote an article for Strange Magazine titled On the Trail of the Goatman. For this article, he interviewed the Edwards family and the three men who found Ginger. John Hayden told Obsasnik that they'd seen an animal that night, and described it as about six feet tall, hairy, and walking on two feet. He also mentioned that it made a high-pitched sound, like a squeal. Just because the Maryland Goatman legend peaked in popularity in the 70s doesn't mean it ever disappeared from the community consciousness. A middle school called St. Mark the Evangelist has had an unknown house behind it for 30 years. Rumors have spread all that time that the Goatman has been seen in and around the house. Some people have even claimed to have found bones, knives, saws, and leftover food inside the house. The Governor Bridge, otherwise known as the Crybaby Bridge, is also known as a place for the Goatman. If one parks under the bridge at night, they'll supposedly hear a crying baby or a goat braying, or even see the Goatman himself. That video comes courtesy of Paxash Plays on YouTube. I'll be honest, I'm highly suspect of many of the claims made in this video. But this is a Hometown Legends episode, so why not go for gold? These encounters have been around for decades, and something tells me that they'll linger for many years to come. And I am perfectly okay with that. And that's going to cap off our season finale and 100th episode. I want to thank each and every one of you for taking the time to call in or write in, leaving reviews, sharing the show with friends, and above all else, tuning in. Be sure to stay tuned after the outro for suggestions on other great paranormal podcasts. Monsters Among Us is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. Additional support is provided by Warren Pon Abbott and Addie Lloyd. All audio used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use. Music used in this episode was provided by Mayu, Nature World 1986, and Coag Music. Thank you all so much for listening, and until next season. wine cabinet said to be possessed by a demon which invokes nightmares and physical harm. An island full of giant rabbits said to appear once every seven years off the coast of Ireland. 
a rural family that in the dead of winter walked one by one into their barn, but never walked out. The world is full of fascinating mysteries, and the Blurry Photos podcast sheds light on the darkest corners of the unknown. With a new storytelling-focused format, Blurry Photos brings legends to life and examines if there's any fact behind the supposed fictions. Join me, David Flora, as I explore the unexplained and explain the unexplored on the Blurry Photos podcast. Welcome to the Kryptonaut Podcast, hosted by Mark Storrs, Chris Carnicelli, Rob Morphy. Join us weekly as we explore everything from aliens, cryptozoology, the occult, ghosts, paranormal phenomenon, ufology, and unsolved mysteries, all while keeping a close eye on our reptilian overlords that dwell in the flat, hollow, robot-infested Earth. This is the Kryptonaut Podcast. We are available at CryptonautPodcast.com. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. They say I'm disturbed. From city to city, an incredible hysterical panic spread. This is about to get weird. Join John, Brent, and Conspiracy Bot each week as they clarify conspiracies. The first time euphemism's ever been used in this show, and I appreciate you calling me out on it. Explore enigmas. Disregard all known writing and use my method, which only works on this. Uh, you'll realize it says, drink rich chocolatey Ovaltine inside the spaceship under the Sphinx. And probe the paranormal. Hold on a second. Uh, I'm, I'm pointing the laser at the wall now. 71... 71.2. Admiral Bird is here. All of this done with the misguided help of the one and only Conspiracy Bot. You're all idiots. Hysteria 51 is a hilarious expedition into the eccentric. Stop on my joke. I Thank will you. when they're good. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcatcher. Remember, the truth is out there, but you won't find it here. Stay woke, meet sex. This is the Secret Transmission Podcast. We are a podcast about the strange and unusual, the secret and the conspiracies, the friends and the supernatural. We're a podcast that talks about weird things like number stations, the Bermuda Triangle, the Salem Witch Trials, time travel, the moon landing, the Zika virus, serial killers, cults, the deep web, UFOs, superstitions. We cover it all. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and Google Play. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Secret Transpod, at S-E-C-R-E-T-T-R-A-N-S-P-O-D. Come listen to us try to explain the unexplainable. Are you a fan of movies? Or comics? Or video games? Or just anything else nerdy? Well, you should check out the Zing This Podcast. And that's spelled Z-E-N-G this and you can find us every monday and we have nerdy topics from comic book reviews to in-depth analysis of iconic nerdy movies as well as video game discussions mm-hmm. where's some of the best places to find us Allie? well podbean of course you can also find us on itunes stitcher google play anywhere else you listen to your podcast, podcast. yeah so check us out once again that is zing, zing this, this. Good evening, everybody, or 
morning or afternoon or whatever. It doesn't matter. We are Graveyard Tales. Now, if you like ghost stories, hauntings, cryptid encounters, and the weird history behind them, then you should join us in the graveyard. You can find us on any of your favorite podcast providers. Check out our website at graveyardpodcast.com and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at GRV. Just go search Graveyard Tales. That would be easier. Now, we hope to see you in the graveyard. If you'd like one, some, or all of these shows, be sure to let the host know where exactly you heard of them. Let them know that Monsters Among Us sent you. It all starts with an invitation to experience Lexus. To connect with us. To see that no detail is too small. To be our special guest. It starts as an invitation to drive a Lexus vehicle, but it becomes an exceptional experience. The Invitation to Lexus sales event. Your invitation is always open. But the offers only last through March 31st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Click the banner to discover more. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.